All right, welcome back to the Foul Balls podcast. We are talking NHL hockey. I'm Matt Meiselman, joined by John Borelli. And the All-Star break is concluding. We're back for a full slate Tuesday night. But we're going to talk more generally about the NHL season, DFS-related things about the NHL season. I guess we'll start with a little bit of a primer for people that are new to DFS hockey or haven't really played it much or just probably need a bit of a refresher on proper lineup construction. So to get into it, I guess, John, what is your methodology when it comes to building lineups? Like what, what are you looking at when you're putting players together? It really all depends on the slate size. So if, if we're, we're going with a bigger slate, I'm not really worried about percentages or ownerships. And I'm, I'm really trying to construct a lineup that is going to out to put out the most points. Whereas on a shorter slate, where, whether it's a two game, three game, four game, even five game slate, I'm more so even willing to pivot off a highly owned line and go for a second or a third line uh, just to get the ownership difference. Um, but again, you know, you have two centers, uh, three wings, uh, utility and 2D. So really you want to stack two lines um, and, and, and hope the correlation from the assists and the goals all come out to play. All right, I guess we should backtrack a little because, I mean, I'm yeah. mostly on the same page with you there, but I think there are a lot of people that just don't really even understand the con- the concept of how lines work. Like there, right. there are plenty of teams that play the same combination of three, well, three man forward groups together the whole game. There's some teams that mix it up, and then you have power plays that sort of cloud it. Where sometimes all the guys on one line play on the same power play unit, um, and right. then sometimes they don't. And the stat that I had read, um, it was pretty alarming. Like I never really thought of it this way. It was from uh, Hockey Abstract, which I guess is like the prospectus for hockey, like baseball or basketball prospectus. Um, mm-hmm. It was. of the game is power play time. I think the number was 26% of the goals are scored on power plays. So you can't ignore it for DFS. It's roughly a quarter of the goals that are scored. And I would also think that uh, a power play goal is more likely to have assists attached to it versus an even strength goal. Um, Just because like power plays involve more set plays. There's more passing usually before a goal is scored. So even when looking at fantasy points, or I guess even just, hockey points it might even be more than 26 percent of the points are actually scored on the power play it could be in the 30s or maybe even 40 percent right yeah and then we can talk about how there's not that many uh statistics or um indicators to really go off of in special teams hockey is definitely one of them and it's a key influencer in terms of output and goals and correlation so before we get into power plays though i guess people should know um I guess it's not necessary to go. It's not necessarily the case that you always are looking for two lines together. We'll get into all these other lineup builds, and maybe you can have mm-hmm. different mixes and stuff. But just on the scoring system, because um, I alluded to it a little bit with the extra assists on power plays. Basically, what you're looking at for hockey DFS is just that goals and assists are basically everything. Like the scoring is more straightforward in hockey, I think, than any other sport where. There are other ways to score points. A shot on goal is worth half a point uh, on DraftKings, and uh, a block shot is worth half a point, but there really aren't a ton of those. They're, they're, they don't happen in enough quantity to really move the needle too much most of the time. So you're really talking about goals that are three points, assists that are two points, and when you're playing three guys on a line together, you're usually seeing five to seven points from those three guys anytime they score. So the assist can come from defensemen, but... A lot of the time you'll have one guy score and both of his line mates get an assist and then you have the three, two, and two. Um, so that's that's the reason you're playing three guys together. 
hockey by nature is just, it's really random just because a winning team usually only scores three or four goals the entire game. Um, so it's very hard to predict which players will score on a given night. What you basically need to do is maximize maximize your leverage where if this thing happens, if this line scores a goal or two goals or more, I'm set up to benefit from it. And the way to do that is just play players who are going to spend time together on the ice. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. So, so I guess uh, when we get into lineup construction, we'll have to talk about different ways, more creative ways to get players who play together because it's sort of, I think we both agree that the main strategy, like the mainstream strategy that most people take when building hockey lineups is you go with three forwards from the same team, uh, another group of three forwards from the same team, and then since you have to use players, the DraftKings rules only permit you to use skaters from three teams or more. You can't just limit your lineup to one or two teams. Um, you would go with two defensemen, one of which plays with one of your forward lines, and then another defenseman just randomly thrown in there from another team. I guess whichever defenseman can fit your salary. I do think that that is the best way. Um, how much thought have you given to other methods beyond that? Or is that is that I mean, really to be, rigid? To be, yeah, yeah no, not to cut you off. To, to, I mean, to be completely honest with you, I, I the, this form of, of stacking the 4-3-1, the, the um, is that what it is? Is it 4-3-1? Yeah. Okay, so the four three one is something that I've really incorporated in terms of the past. I'd say the past year, um, you know, for you know, for the first two or three years I played, I, you know, I would always drop a third winger or you know, always fill in someone who I felt, you know, I, I just the, the the way I constructed my labs was more of a salary, you know, a price uh, kind of way instead of a stacking way, and um, sometimes that pays off and sometimes it doesn't. Um, you know, when I when I came in second in, in the finals, I had Kyle Palmieri. I was the only one to have him. He had two goals when I came in second. And, like, I was, like, a crazy one-off that I played that just somehow worked out. And, you know, that was, like, my thing. I, I love to do that. And then and then I've, you know, over the past year, just, you know, just seeing so many tournaments and seeing so many, you know, teams at the top, it's just, like, I, I just felt like over time that the 4-3-1 was just consistently more at the top than it wasn't. So then I, I, I just kind of made that that. that well, the four three one definitely is the easiest way to maximize correlation, especially mm-hmm. when the forward groups play on the same power play line, and especially when those forwards play with the defenseman that is in the same lineup that you're building. So, if yep. you have two lines in your lineup, um, both lines are all players who play on the first power play unit of their teams, and then the defenseman plays on the first power play. Those seven players, it's separated into two groups, but they're all they're they're seeing a lot of ice time with each other. So that's, I mean, that's the reason it's it works. And I think the reason that so many people do it is because you have a lot of these guys that build lineups with algorithms and, you know, they can just set those right. parameters, play the three forwards with the defenseman that spends the most time on the ice with them. And then they don't really have to overthink it. It's just, it's a very standard way of building. But because of that, I think it, there are a lot of comparable lineups to what you may have if you're building that way. Because the tournament fields are just littered with people who are doing the exact same thing. And if it's a short slate where there's a couple, there's only a couple obvious lines to pick from, you're going to see a lot of very similar combinations. So I guess we can get into how it would be contrarian to do basically any other line of construction. But just, uh, just on that point alone with building correlation, there, there are definitely other ways to build correlation, especially when the forward groups don't all play on the same power play unit. 
Yeah, no, no, I, I, I completely agree. And I feel like, you know, you see those teams with the 4-3-1 at the top of the tournaments uh, in extremely large GPPs. So, you know, if you're playing in a smaller field or a smaller tournament, you, it's it's just you can you can win those tournaments without trying to maximize that upside per se, especially on a big slate. And I feel like also on big slates, there's more of a chance, like, you know, whether it was the last night or whatever it was, that with, with stacking the full lines and that coming into play than being on a short slate. Would you agree? Yeah, I think um, I think if I'm reading you properly, it's well. I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're saying, but because there are so many people that play the four three one lineup style, just by definition, you're going to see them. You're gonna you're gonna see them all over the place. If you look for the last place line, it's probably a four three one. The first place line is probably a four three one, just because most of the lines are four three one. So. I don't think it's necessarily an indication that four three one works better. It's just that so many people are doing it that it's more likely to be the outcome, regardless of what outcome that is. No, that's that that that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, yeah, no, you're 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 right there. Um, uh, so, I guess what I was looking for early in the season, and I kind of got away from it when it comes to stacking a full team. Well. Usually there's not a ton of correlation between, let's say, the first line of forwards and the second line of forwards on the same hockey team because they're not really going to be playing with each other at all for the most part. But you do have some teams where, let's say, two of the three forwards are on the first line or on the first power play, and then maybe that third forward is on the second power play. And then the second line is flipped where it's two of the forwards are on the second power play and one's on the first power play. So you sort of have like a cross-matching, so to speak, where they kind of are sharing ice time with opposite lines. And it becomes a little tricky there. Like, you can you can get even more ice time from those players together if you play them all in the same lineup. It's, um... And then it becomes even a little more complicated than that with defensemen. So, I think I've done a lot of trial and error and a lot of... I, I mean, I'm usually doing 20 lineups a night. So, I'll have... If I'm, maybe I'm doing a team stack with the same team four times, I'll do four different versions of that team stack. But you can get six skaters from the same team into a lineup. So theoretically, you should have more correlation when you're using six skaters from the same team instead of just four skaters from one team and three from the other. I, you know what? That's a good question. Um, I haven't, I haven't even looked at it like that. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not really a huge team stack kind of guy. For I know you know that it's just more of a, you know put all your eggs in one basket on one line and, and hope the line goes off for you know two to three goals and 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 just kind of maximize that 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 upside. Um, but um, see, I, I would never, me personally, I wouldn't try to worry about a power play two with, you know, half of one line playing with the other line, maybe on a specific slate where it's, you know, really, really short. But uh, for, for the most part, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm so, I'm so um, used to playing in this particular format, whether it is the four, three in, in terms of just, just maximizing three players to the fullest and, and, and hoping that they go off. And then obviously we can kind of talk about, you know, the team differences and, in terms of like the Carolina Hurricanes, that you know that, that mix up their lines so much, and they have so much talent, and so much goal scoring. But like, if, if you can figure out which line is going to go off there, um, you know you, you're going to make a lot of money, especially on a big slate. But you know if if, if the scoring spread out, you know like like sometimes it usually is, and, and the awful lines obviously been you know leading leading the pack in terms of Carolina. Um, 
it's uh, it, it, it's just it's just hard to tell. Well, I'll give a team specific example that I think makes it a little bit easier. So the Lightning for the last couple weeks, I guess, have been playing Stamkos and Kucherov on separate lines. So they have Stamkos yeah. and Nemesnikov on the first line, and they have Point and Kucherov on the second line. And yeah. so they have two power play one guys on each of those two lines. So I've mm-hmm. done whenever I've used Tampa Bay recently, I've used all four of those players together. Not so mm-hmm. much just because it's contrarian, because it is like people don't really do that. And I think a lot of it is kind of just your feelings. I think a lot of people mm-hmm. feel that way too. Um, it's not just that it's contrarian, but I think it's extra correlation. Like you have Stamkos and Domestikov are correlated, even strength. They're playing on the same line. Point and Kucherov are correlated, even strength, playing on the same line. And then all four guys are correlated when they have a power play. Um, so there's, I think there's an extra boost for overall correlation like that. I'm, I'm not so much concerned with power play twos and getting power play ones and power play twos mixed. It's just when you have guys who correlate at different parts of the game where they're skating with some guys for some of the game and some guys with other parts of the game, like on special teams, um, most importantly, when they have a power play. So I think that that's my logic there. It's not... I'm trying to mix in the second power play. It's the first power play does spread around across two lines, and I think you can get a higher ceiling with a lineup when you're playing more players from the same team. Yeah, and a higher ceiling, and also a more unique lineup, like you said. You know, and and when I do a four-three-one, you know, I'm doing a first line, a full power play, and the defense, the defenseman that is is on that power play. So it's it's really no different. I'm just using a defenseman instead of a utility player. So it's the same. It's the same idea. It's just it's just a different position, which which again in turn is making your, your team unique. Right, like you could do four three one, I guess, where you're using three forwards and a defenseman from one team, and then on the other team you go two forwards and then one defenseman from that same team, and then your your one off player, your utility player is it just a, yeah you end up with an extra forward instead of it being an extra defenseman. That's not that abnormal of a strategy. I mean, I think both of us do it all the time. Uh, I probably do it more often than you do, but yeah, I mean that that that's close enough to the four three one that I think it could be considered very much the same thing. Um, I think the misconception though is that there's a right answer for this stuff. Like part of the reason that I make multiple lineups every night is because there there isn't a right answer, and I'm just trying to spread around a bunch of similarly possible outcomes where it's like. I like this combination about as much as I like this combination. They're very similar, but maybe there's two, one or two players changed between the two of them. So I'll just enter more combinations at lower stakes versus playing one combination at higher stakes. Because I'd be lying if I said I have a ton of conviction in these nine players tonight. These are my guys. I think they'll all do well. It's not that. It's these players could do well, and I want to leverage them properly. So... Since I'm guessing, I might as well make a few guesses and have a chance to hit with some of those guesses. No, I, I completely agree with you there. And in terms of hockey, trying to predict who is going to score a goal and who's going to get an assist and who's going to get a hat trick is like, you know, pretty pretty hard to do. And it's not like in other sports where you can analyze a batter versus pitcher matchup in a, a lefty righty split or you know a right field ports being short or or whatever analytics you want to look at. Um, I, I do feel the scoring is a little bit more random aside from the power play and the special teams in hockey. So, um, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you there. Well, you can see on the Vegas lines, too, just that hockey by nature is more random. Because, like, in football, the best team in the league playing against the worst team in the league 
is probably a 10 to 1 or 15 to 1 favorite. Basketball, maybe not quite as extreme, but sort of the same thing. Um, baseball's more random than those, where if Clayton Kershaw is pitching at home for the Dodgers and it's they're facing the Padres or something, maybe they're a 4 to 1 favorite or a little bit less than that. But you almost never see a hockey team more than two and a half to one. Three to one is really extreme. And the vast majority of the games, the teams are in the, I guess, even money to minus 200 range, which means they that the favorite has between a 50 and a 66% chance of winning. So the, like, the winner of the game is pretty random. And then there are four different lines on each team that could all score goals. So even if you get the winner of the game right, you may not even get the goal scorers right. I think, like, when you break it down, it seems like a much more random sport than any of the other major sports and maybe just any other sport that you can think of. I completely agree with you. I completely agree with, you know, everything that you just said and, and just going back to what I said before, trying to predict of who's going to put the goal in net. And let's talk about empty netters. I mean, I know me and you have had the conversation before. And unfortunately enough, the winner of a tournament is probably going to have an empty net goal. How in the world? I mean, you can, you can predict of, who takes really good face-offs and, and their percentages there, or you know, you can really study in in terms of who's on the ice playing defense at the end of the game. But you know, at the end of the day, what if that team just happens to be on on the wrong shift and it's on the wrong time? And and how how it's like it just it's just adding to the what you just said in terms of it being random. It's it's empty net goals might be the most frustrating thing in all of daily fantasy sports. And I, I say that as a hockey player, I say that as a, as a baseball player, and I say that you know as as a football player too. And you know, it's just one of those things that you just can't predict. And, you know, when I'm making a daily fantasy lineup, the one thing I want to do is try to eliminate luck. And when I can't when I can't eliminate luck and I have to try and predict an empty net goal, it's beyond frustrating. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a, a comparable scoring play in another major daily fantasy sport. It would almost be like if a quarterback taking a knee, instead of being worth negative a tenth of a point, was like negative 10 points. Like it, it's, it's that it's, significant to the final score. It's, it's, it's a play that only occurs if the players that you picked already have the lead and it may be worth more points than the rest of their output for the game combined. It's such a huge swing and it's such a huge swing at the wrong time at the end of the night when, you know, you, you're, you're at the top of the, you're at the top of the tournament or, or, or at the right time. If it's a if it's a good empty net goal. <laughs> yeah, no, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I know something we've talked about before is, is looking into, you know, teams that, you know, and this is very coaching related teams that pull their goalies earlier than others. And honestly, I think it's just going to have to come down to, you know, knowing which coaches do pull earlier than others, which one will, will, will pull more frequently with two goals down or one goal down. And, it's, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. And you know what? It's such a random sport like we've just been talking about that, you know, a lot of my success with it has really been on literally watching the games, knowing which players are um, particularly playing in in a I, – I know, I know you're, you're kind of against players that are hot sometimes or, 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 or in a groove or, or whatever it is. Or just for me personally, it's, it's knowing teams and places – whether it's you know the, the Jets at home and their power play percentage, which is probably the best in the league, or uh, it's 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 really just trying to narrow down uh, anything you can possibly narrow down and putting your, your team in the best chance to win, and then just hoping it kind of comes out that way. On a short slate, uh, I'll, I'll pivot to a second or a third line just because, and a lot of the time I can't really justify my reasons for doing that besides ownership, and that's unfortunate in itself. Um, that you know I. I I could love a team so much it could be minus two fifty, two and a half to one, and you know the over under is six. But at the same time, it's like I'm really picking a second line right now because I'm trying to 
gauge ownership. Yeah, I think uh, we'll get to the short slate strategies in a second. I just wanted to comment on the empty net thing. Well, yeah. for people who don't really know how that works, in hockey, teams that are trailing by a goal will replace their goalie with another skater to try to tie the game because they're down a goal and they're, they've gone into full desperation mode. I guess they're, I guess in soccer, it's kind of the same. Like The goalie will run out of the net and join the play, but since a hockey goalie is wearing full goalie pads, that's not allowed, so they put another skater on the ice, and then the team that has less players now is shooting at an empty net. So a lot of hockey games end with the team that's up by one winning by two because the other team was trying to tie it and they scored that empty netter. Um, yeah, the only specifics I have on it, I mean, it seems like the Hurricanes pull their goalie a little earlier than most teams. And I think home teams pull their, or at least home favorites, pull their goalie a little earlier than other teams. Um, I've kind, I, I've kind of noticed this too in basketball games where if a big favorite is down 10 at the end of a game, They'll foul earlier than if a big underdog is down 10 because if the team is expecting to lose, they don't get quite as desperate. But if the team was expecting to win before the game, they get a little more desperate. But it, it's kind of just anecdotal there. I mean, there's so much guesswork that goes into knowing which players will be on the ice for empty net situations, when, the, when those empty net situations will occur, how much time the goalie will be out of the net for. Um, the one thing that I think we can both agree is that the reason that it makes sense to pick a goalie from the same team as your skaters is because if your goalie has been pulled, that means he has the lead and DraftKings awards three points for a win bonus to the goalie. So there's correlation for goalie has the lead likely to get a win bonus and your skaters having empty net chances. That I think that's the one area where we can actually use it to our advantage and say there's very strong correlation beyond just the fact that if your skaters score regular goals throughout the course of the game, your goalie is more likely to have a lead and get the win. But there's also, if your goalie is leading, the skaters have more of a chance for an empty netter. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And that's just goes in terms of maximizing your upside and, and hoping you have the right, the right line on, on the ice with your goalie. And then if they do get that empty net goal and, and you two get the win at the same time, you're going to be shooting up the leaderboard very, very quickly. Um, sometimes in the four, three, one format that I use, I like to pair my goalie with the three, and, and and make it contrarian. So what I'm doing is making my lineup unique in the fact that I'm picking an underdog, I'm picking a goalie that's an underdog, and I'm also picking a line that's going to be low-owned because that team is supposed to lose. So if, if And this is kind of to the next level of maximizing your, 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 your upside, uh, is, is having players that are going to be on the ice that are going to be on a losing team with a goalie that's supposed to be, uh, that's, with goalie that's supposed to lose. Um, and then I like pairing that to chalk in terms of the team with the highest upside and the highest team total or whatever it may be, um, and, and kind of doing a 50-50. So I'll have half of my lineup is contrarian and half my lineup is chalk, and the contrarian is paired to the goalie. Yeah, I think your last couple points sort of get to uh, what I wanted to talk about next, which is just like going over what's worked and not worked for us over the first half of the season. Um yeah, going with a goalie that is an underdog, I think, is inherently contrarian. I think most people pick their goalies based on that guy being the favorite. Because when you're picking a goalie, the thing you care about the most is that potential win bonus. Well, I guess in theory, that's what people care about. Um, I don't personally care about it that much. I'm looking for low ownership on goalies. I'm looking for a chance of a lot of saves. Saves are only worth two-tenths of a point, but you know, 10 or 15 extra saves, that could add up if you're facing a good offense. And then... I guess I'm also looking for the low-owned goalie to be facing a high-owned offense because if that goalie happens to play well, 
than a lot of chalky players have to do poorly for him to do well. Um, so that's one of the things that's worked for me throughout the season. It works more on short slates because the ownership on the top players is just more concentrated. If there's only two games and maybe one of the games is Pick'em and the second game, one of the teams is a minus 180 favorite or something like that, the, the first line of that minus 180 favorite more often than not will be owned by 40, 50, maybe even more than that percent of the field. And if you pick the goalie that's going against those guys and your goalie does well, not only will you get a lot of points from your goalie, half the field that had all of those skaters will end up doing very poorly because their skaters just didn't score. Um, So I would say that that's been my best general strategy for the first half that's worked for me. I mean, a lot of times the chalky skaters score and then you just get crushed and your night's over in the first period of the first game. But when it works, it works big. So I guess, um, yeah, that's been... I think the method that I'm most confident will continue to work, just being contrarian with your goalie pick. But um, what has like what do you think has worked and then not worked for you so far this year? So I'm going to go ahead and start with what has not worked with me. So what has not worked for me so far this year, and it's it's pairing. And, and again, it goes back to slate size, and it's going back to, to teams that are very top heavy and teams that are more spread out. So I would I would say teams like the Colorado Avalanche with the McKinnon line, the Stars, the Dallas Stars with Sagian, uh, or even the, the the Panthers with the Barkoff line. Uh, you know these these teams are not only are on the first power play, uh, all three of them. Not only do they get twenty minutes a game, but some of them even play penalty kill together. And you know when you're when you're trying to take down a tournament, when you're trying to get first place, you need the hat trick extra points. You need the shorthanded extra points. And and trying to target these teams on very big slates for me has has has, uh, has has been successful um, because I'm I'm not having to worry about someone like the Arizona Coyotes who you know literally play their like like 12 minutes 13 minutes each of the four lines and it's just so spread out that it's you know I, I want minutes and I want shots on goal and I want goals and assists obviously and and for me personally it's it's really knowing when to target you know certain teams so I, I've learned based on coaches decisions and and, and just the lines where. You know where to target certain teams and where not to target certain teams. So I know before, like on a shorter slate, let's use the Carolina Hurricanes as an example. You know, to be contrarian off the Aho line, we'll, we'll we'll go Skinner, and 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 that's more or so. Or even if we're we're trying to, you know, instead of if if, if the Maple Leafs are playing, uh, instead of going with the Matthews line, we'll go Marner, and 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 that that goes to the pivots. But it also kind of it speaks to I would never I would never pick a Marner line on a twelve game slate because. Just in terms of the ice time and the power play correlation, I just really don't feel that, that the, the, the upside is maximized there. Whereas, you know, you get the Boston Bruins and the Marchand line and, and the Bergeron line and, and Pasternak, who all play together on the power play, who all get a ton of ice time together, and then also play on the penalty kill as well. Yeah, part of the reason, well, I think the main reason that you're going to a second or third line from a team is because of ownership. And when it's a bigger slate, ownership just doesn't matter as much. This is true for every sport where when there are more games to choose from, ownership is just spread out more. Um, so the, I think the best example I can come up with is recently where the it was when the Bruins were at home against the Devils. I think there were 12 games on that slate. And normally with the Bruins playing the Devils at home, which is one of the best matchups you can have, um, the Bergeron line, you know, they'd all have really high ownership. And they were the highest on line, but those guys were only owned maybe 15 to 20% each in, I think it was like the $8 tournament. Um, and that's just because there are so many choices out there that you won't, you won't generally see players being really high owned 
when there are 12 games, 24 total teams, so it's 96 total lines to choose from. Like You're just not going to have everyone making the same decision. 15 to 20% for three players is a lot, but it's not as much as it would be if there were less games to choose from, like uh, Bergeron, Pasternak, and Marchand. I've seen them all over 50% on a two-game slate in a good matchup where everyone just used them on the two-game slate. So when you're when you're going to a depth line, they're not actually that much lower owned on a short slate than they are on a large slate. Maybe uh, Marner, Bozak, and Van Riemsdyk on a 12-game slate, maybe those guys are like 2 or 3% owned. On the short slate, they're still only like 5 to 10% owned because no one focuses on them either way. So you're just not you're not getting the value of using them and being contrarian when there are less when there are, are more games to choose from because ownership just isn't really a big concern on big slates. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with everything you just said. The last thing I'm worried about on a on a big slate is ownership. I'm more I'm more concerned about maximizing my upside in one full lineup. And and uh, for for me, what what has worked and and what hasn't worked, especially recently, and I'm going to go back to what hasn't worked. You know, in the past two weeks with the All Star Game coming up, and um, the the schedule has been uh, a lot of short slates or short term slates. And I've been staying, I've been staying true to the four three one, and in turn have, and and in, this, in these short states have really kind of noticed that, um, it just it just hasn't been panning out recently, and and the, the winners of, of all of these tournaments have been more random, whether it has been team stack, whether it has been more of a you know diversified lineup in terms of stacking, and um, you know I, I do think it will regress back to the four three one with with the bigger slates, but. For me personally, in the, in the past two or three weeks, it's it's been a rough go around just because um, the the four three one format has not come into play, and I really can't speak to if that's just a slate size or if it's just a coincidence or if it's a little bit of both. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. So I mean, it sounds like on larger slates, and I think this is probably true for both of us, we do better on larger slates when going with more mainstream strategies like using a chalkier line just a higher owned line that just is very obviously in a good situation because on larger slates the ownership just doesn't matter as much and you can just pick the best players um, and then just going more mainstream also with your line of construction on those slates because it's not as much of a concern to be contrarian and deviate from the 431 um, usually part of the reason the 431 is good is because you're using the first line of two different teams and then a top defenseman and a goalie from one of those teams who should win. So you just have, it just naturally fits that all of the players you're using are players you see as good value plays. Um, so I would guess, I mean, on shorter slates doing that, there's a lot more risk involved because, well, I guess risk is probably the wrong word, but there's, there's more downside where if it doesn't work, then you've just you've the whole field has been sunk so it's maybe it's maybe more so that there's more upside going away from that on a short slate and there's very little upside going away from it on a larger one like for me i i will deviate from 431 and use different lineup build types um on both small and larger slates and i've done way worse compared to your split i've done worse on the big ones because my contrarian methods on the big ones it just doesn't it doesn't help me very much. I'll use a goalie that's a plus 200 underdog and I'll use five or six skaters from that team and it's just I'm not benefiting even that much because that team could win 5 nothing and all my players did well and then there's three other teams out there whose first lines all scored a bunch of goals and their goalies got wins and it's like I went contrarian and did well but there were obvious picks that also did well. 
Um, on the short slates, though, it works more with, I guess, like my philosophies and yours work better on the larger ones. Yeah, I mean, when when you only have to avoid so many chalk plays on, on a shorter slate, it really eliminates the possibilities of, you know, having the chalk come through when, when you have a 12 or even we saw a 15 game slate last week. Um, some chalk is going to come through and, 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 and whether you pivot it or whether you avoid it or, or whether you, 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 you make a correct fade, um, at the end of the day, uh, sometimes it, it just comes through. So you, you can still make the right call and still lose. And I find that the most frustrating, whether it's in hockey or daily fantasy sports in general is making that correct fade and then still having some other kind of chalk come through. Again, this is going back to slate size and how many teams are playing. So, you know, for me personally, I've, I've seen the best results probably like seven to nine games slate um, because there's not there's not too many things that I need to avoid where it comes you know where anything random can happen whereas you know on a shorter slate you know you really only have to worry about the Boston one line or the Islanders one line and if you can avoid those two going off and you can make the right pivot then you're in a good spot um, yeah um, and then I guess for me like I've done the best on slates that are two, three, four, maybe even five games where I've identified this is the one combination. And what makes it easy is there's usually, only, on slates that small, there's usually only one forward line that's really, really worrisome, where if that line does well, I'm done. And I identify who that line is, use the goalie against them, and just hope that goalie plays well. Um, and then I'll usually mix different forward groups in my various line combinations. And if that goalie ends up having a good game, maybe even gets a shutout, then those are huge nights. And I would say I definitely lose those more often than I win, but the win, the win amounts make up for the loss amounts. So if you're playing that sort of strategy, it's definitely important to play for a consistent amount of money on each of those, um, to not put all your eggs in one basket because you're basically, they're not lottery tickets. It's not that hard to win them. Maybe you're talking about like one in four, one in five chances, something like that where the payout, is, it can be 10 to 1, let's say, on average. Um, so if you're only winning 20% of the time on those types of strategies, you don't want to use all of your bankroll to try to win, and you don't want to use too little of your bankroll either for, for a given slate. Like, I've, I've had the tendency before to say, oh, it's a two-game slate, I'll play for maybe 10% of the money that I would normally play for, and that one ends up being a good one, and it just I, I just didn't like it because there were only two games to choose from. Um, so that's something I think going forward into the second half of the season that I will be looking to do more is actually doubling down on the small slates where I feel like I, I actually have more of an edge on the smaller ones. But for some reason, I'm more I'm more willing to put more money in on larger slates. Like I think I think the most money I played for on a slate this season was the 15 gamer the night before the All-Star break because it was like there's so many different combinations. I just want to have exposure to all of them. But in reality, that's one of the worst types of slates to have. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree again. And um, in terms of uh, just having those combinations together and, and, and the slate size, um, I've uh, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. So what do you think you'll do differently the second half of the hockey season to be more profitable at Hockey DFS? Well, it, it kind of goes back to what you were you were saying in terms of bankroll management. If you're gonna if you're gonna really try and play those odds, you need to really really be consistent in terms of how much you're spending. So you know when you need uh, Anti Niemi to you know beat the, the Penguins, you need to you need to you don't necessarily 
if you if you really don't like the play, you don't need to just set a contrarian lineup just because. And and for me personally, sometimes I'll I'll do a pivot, or sometimes I'll take a contrarian line, or sometimes I'll take an underdog when I'm really not really feeling the play. So there's a fine line, and and this is where the bankroll management comes into play is is do you want to just be contrarian in this spot? And, and, and if you do, are you going to consistently do it? And and I feel like, and just like you said, there's like a 10 to one, you know, payout when that does hit. And if you do it consistently, it, it'll, it'll be fine because, you know, these upsets do happen, you know, and um, it's, it's just more so about being consistent in bankroll management in terms of where I'm picking my spots and, and, and um, a slate size in general in terms of what I'm going to play. I mean, I think we would both agree that it's better to play for more money on slates you are more confident about, but I think it's important to really do a better job of figuring out when you're actually more confident. Like, I one of the slates that I felt the best about recently was actually an anti-Niemi slate, and I didn't play it for that much because I was like, oh, it's anti-Niemi, he'll probably lose. Um, I know there's a lot of upside if he does well. I think he was facing the Capitals on the road in Washington, um, he's on the Canadians now. He's played for three yeah, teams so, this man. year. He's such a bad goalie. Um, <laughs> but the way to think about it is that you look at or sort of figure out in your head, what do you think the ownership of this goalie will be? What do you think the ownership of the opposing skaters will be? And if the goalie does well, how how big of an advantage do I have over the field? In that case, like Antoniemi was, I think, 2% owned and Ovechkin was 40-something percent owned. And... I, I didn't think it would be quite that extreme, but I knew it would be extreme because Niemi is never someone that people use. I think he had lost every single one of his six starts co- coming into that game, uh, five goals allowed per game. And Ovechkin is one of the best scorers in the history of the league, plays with usually at least some good line mates. Um, but if you looked at the Vegas line for that game, the Canadians were only plus 140 underdogs. And I guess you could think like 40% chance the Canadians win this game roughly. I mean, that's pretty good odds for a payout that should be way more than plus 140. Like, you make a lot more money picking Niemi and Canadian skaters than you do just betting the, the line on Montreal. And that's sort of how I think about it. It's like, the Canadians have a 40% chance to win, which is about a one and a half to one payout. That's like the fair amount. Um, but I can leverage these players where I'm getting paid way more than one and a half to one because the ownership makes it such that if you're right, you're a lot. You're benefiting a lot more than you probably should be. Yeah, and I think we agree in terms of how we construct our lineups, especially on shorter slates and predicting upsets. And we're just predicting the players who are going to score in that upset for a higher payout, which is pretty much exactly what you just said. And um, just picking the players in the right spots and and and, and hoping for a higher payout. So I, I completely agree. Yeah, it's it's not like you need to know which upsets will happen. You just have you need to, to consistently do it with a bankroll management, you know, fashion of being really, really disciplined, and and that's the trick of the trade is 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 picking these upsets, but doing it with the same amount of money every time in the same type of in, like in the same type of uh, tournament, and, and and it's 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 not rocket science that you know people are consistently making money off of this. It's because if you do it consistently and you and you do it with the right amount of money. These upsets will happen, and you will shoot to the top of the leaderboard, and then you'll you'll see really high payouts, and you'll end up at the, at the end of the season up a lot. So consistently, I know me and you both try to set contrarian lineups for the most part, just to get that exposure and those high payouts, and 
doing it consistently in the same tournament entry fees and, and, and all that. And whether it's playing qualifiers or, or, you know, or going big on one night, whether you feel confident or not is, is something that kind of disrupts, you know, that success in terms of, you know, how much you're making. And this is relevant for any DFS sport, but a lot of times the amount of money you're playing for is heavily dependent on how much you've won or lost in the preceding, let's say, a week leading up to that day. And just because you did well yesterday doesn't mean you have to double down and play for more today if the slate is looking a lot worse. Like, you do well on a four-game night, and then the next night's got 14 games, and you can't really figure out how you like who you like, but it's just... Well, I'm, I got to ride the hot streak. I think that's that's the area where I think the hot streak hurts the most is when fantasy players think that they themselves can develop a hot hand. I mean, like I sort of get in actual sports, like you can build up a little bit of team momentum where everyone's passing to each other and there's like a good rhythm going and maybe it's just a good matchup against a bad team. But like, you know, everyone is everyone's focused. There's, there's a high level of intensity. Everyone's focused. You could, you could see a team play well for short spurts and it's not just that they got lucky. There's, there's sometimes more of an effort thing that's involved or maybe, maybe everyone just got healthy, all of that, all those little factors that could add up. But in playing DFS, you don't have that. You, you can't really get a hot streak as a fantasy player. I mean, do, do you think that there's any argument to be made that you should acknowledge your own hot streaks in fantasy sports no i you know as much as i would love to debate you there i can't you know and even sometimes when i do hit a couple nights in a row i'll, I'll feel like i'm in the groove but there's actually i cannot say that there's any evidence that really supports that and yeah well i, well, I will say players can get hot and and especially you know and, and groups of players can get hot together and teams can get hot and i feel particularly goalies can get hot but at the same time um my success has come from knowing for, for me personally this year, my success has come in, in terms of the value lines in particular. When, when, I, when I see a line in a particular spot, and this is my secondary line, this isn't my first line, this is probably my, if I'm doing a 4-3-1, this is my three, I, I, I see them hitting value at the very least, and I, I, I go with them, and then pairing a bunch of different chalk places with them. Is, is where I've seen success. So there's there's some nights where that value line is clear as day and you can see it from a mile away. And then there's some times where it's like you're trying to construct a lineup in a certain format and you, you're you not getting that value on, on the dollar and you're still trying to format it a certain way. So it's it's more so just kind of knowing when to play and knowing when to sit on your hands. Yeah, there's something you just triggered in my head actually that I think is a really important distinction between hockey and literally every other fantasy sport. Um, only expensive players are generally chalky. So the, the highest owned players are always those first lines that are in good spots and they're all the best players and they have a good matchup. Those cheap lines, it's very rare that there's a really, really high owned cheap line. Um, if you're playing at really high stakes in a smaller field, maybe like a $300 or $500 entry, you may see that a little more where a cheaper line like the first line of a bad team or the second or third line of any team where there's a lot of ownership on those three cheap players. But for the most part, and especially at lower stakes, you can basically just be contrarian by using cheaper players. Like it, I can't even really think of an example this season where a cheap line was chalky, except one exception where uh, the Canucks' first line was coming off a couple of good games in a row and uh, Horvat, Besser, and Bershey were... I don't know, maybe it was only even 20 or 30% owned each in a good matchup. But 
that's like as extreme as it gets. For for the most part, we're just talking about the expensive players that are high owned. Yeah, uh, the the value lines in I feel in terms, you know, some of the winners at the top are the ones that you know can find that value line to pair to the chalk. And for me personally, I've been doing a great job this year in terms of identifying which lines at the very minimum are going to hit value. And my my struggles so far this year have been pairing that to the right line. And I'm not a 20 entry player. You know, normally I'll do a two to three max entry and pairing it to whether it's a Sikian line or a Barkoff line or a McDavid line and hoping that that comes out soon. I don't know if that comes just with watching a lot of hockey. I don't know if it comes with playing a lot of daily fantasy hockey. I don't know if it comes from knowing which players or which teams and which spots, whether it is a home or away, whether it is a divisional matchup or whether it is a high over-under that's trending up. Uh, all I know is that I, I know I know it's a gut instinct in terms of you know salary-wise when I do think a value line is going to overachieve its value. And for me personally, the struggles have been kind of pairing it to the right chalk when being such a limited entry player. Yeah, it's um, it's tough to use projections for hockey on these cheap lines too because you're looking for upside. Um, it probably helps a little more on cheap lines though because like you said, hitting value still is relevant. And if you're looking at cheaper players, you're not worried about ownership very much. The cheap, there, well, part of it is that there are way more cheap lines than there are expensive lines, so it's just diluted by nature there also. Um, so it does make sense to just target the best value in cheap lines because usually in terms of a salary cap, you can only really fit three expensive forwards and then three cheaper forwards, and sort that sort of ends up being roughly the amount of salary you have depending on how cheap or how expensive those guys are. Um, so, I mean, I do like your strategy in general of going with a high-priced top line, preferably the one that's maybe the, only the second or third or maybe even lower highest owned that you just think is in a good spot, and maybe it's a pivot off the very obvious best spot of a top line. And then for your secondary forwards, you just want the ones that have the best value for their prices. And usually that's just contrarian by default because people, there are just, like I said, so many cheap lines to choose from. Um, that can get a little bit tricky on shorter slates, but when there are a lot of games to choose from, I don't see any reason to deviate from that. And I think I have deviated from that too much. Um, so when there's more, let's say more than seven games in the night, I think going forward, I'll probably be sticking to that methodology much more than I did in the first half. Yeah. And when, when picking these, these cheaper, these cheaper lines, these value lines, these contrarian lines, you know, most of the time when they score one goal, if they can get one goal together, they're already hitting value. So, you know, if, if, if you can find that, that line that either is, is, is having great chemistry at a certain time or even anything from that or to getting an empty net goal and, and knowing when they're on the ice, if you can get one goal out of that line, you're, you're in a good spot and you really just need chalk to hit after that. And God forbid, if you, if you get two goals out of that line, you're, you're in a really, really good spot. So, um, there's just so much value in, in finding that cheap line. And again, like we've talked about, it's, it's so hard to predict in hockey, but it just kind of comes back to, I mean, at least for me personally is, is, is just knowing certain spots and certain players where, you know, they do better than others. Um, and, and, and unfortunately with hockey, and, and there is a lot of luck involved, you know, and I know we agree on that. Yeah. I think, uh, it's, it might seem a little strange to people listening to this who are used to other sports because we're talking very little about specific players. I mean, we've mentioned some of them, but this is much more 
philosophical, just a, in, a, in a general sense, it's just how do you set up your combinations? And I think it has to be that way for hockey just because there's so much variance in the way the sport is won and lost in actual games. There's even more variance in the way that individual players perform for DFS. So it's like you can't you can't just you know throw a dart and say, I like Johnny Gaudreau tonight. I think he's going to do well. There's just no way that's a profitable long-term strategy. And even if you're doing it based on projections, like here are the eight skaters that are projected the best for their price by whatever methodology, it still doesn't work because you haven't built the correlation. You haven't built the leverage with ownership. It's just too random to rely on safe picks. So I guess this might be my last point, but I, I haven't played cash games for hockey basically the entire season. I don't think you have either. How strongly do you feel that hockey is a tournament-only sport? Uh, I mean, I uh, you're, you're right. I really only play tournaments for hockey just on, on the 4 through one format that I've been using recently in terms of the past year and, and having that work for me. Um, so I, I really only do tournaments. But kind of what I was just thinking about when you were talking right there is, is let's say let's say football, for example. Let's say you know the Steelers are at home and, and you take Big Ben and Antonio Brown. You're starting your lineup with where you think a good play is. Whereas I think in hockey, we're we're eliminating risk. So we're just it's more game theory. It's more you know we're 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 not picking plays. We're trying to eliminate as much risk as possible. So we're stacking power play lines, or you know we're stacking the goalie with that line, or whatever it may be. So it's just kind of a different mentality when making the lineup. It's it's not as much as as uh, oh I you know I like Giancarlo Stanton versus lefty as much as it is as it's like I'm going to pivot off this line and hope that it hits. And that's you know kind of saying that out loud is kind of unfortunate to say because mm-hmm. you know you you want to eliminate as much luck as possible you know when you're playing daily, daily fantasy sports in, in general. So it's just it's just kind of a backwards way in terms of setting a lineup in terms of you know, how you construct it in terms of other sports. I don't know if you agree with me there. No, I definitely do. It's like you have to acknowledge that there is a lot of luck because we just know that there is. You have to admit that to yourself. I don't know the right answer for a given day, and no one does because it's just not knowable who is going to produce. I mean, it's not knowable in any sport. There's randomness involved in any sport, but there's much more in hockey. I think we've outlined that pretty well. So you kind of just have to set yourself up where here are the things that I think can happen. And if they happen, am I set up to benefit from them? Um, One of the things I talk about a lot is using goalies. I think I've mentioned it already on this podcast is using goalies against high owned skaters and vice versa, using high owned or uh, using skaters against a high owned goalie that everyone else is using. Um, And it just creates additional leverage because you are picking players that directly take away points from players that other people are using. So for your Steelers example, there is no way to do that. I mean, if you're using Roethlisberger and Antonio Brown, the only the only points that are getting taken away from someone else are, I don't know, maybe that's a fate of Le'Veon Bell, but that doesn't really, you know, Roethlisberger and Le'Veon Bell could still have a good game together. There's not There's not a ton of separation between them. Maybe if the opposing defense that's facing the Steelers is really chalky, then that's your contrarian pivot to be using their passing game. But that doesn't really exist in football. It certainly doesn't exist in basketball. One team scoring actually increases the likelihood that the other team will score, especially if the game might go to overtime. So, you know, LeBron's playing against Durant. You don't fade Durant for LeBron. They they don't, I mean, maybe one steals the ball from the other one a couple times a game and the other one loses half a point, but it's, it's very, very insignificant. 
I mean, baseball has some of this with pitchers versus hitters, but hockey, it's really extreme where you can pick players that directly contradict other players. And I think that's really important for tournaments. And I also think it's why, well, it's part of the reason that cash games are just so difficult. Right, and I, I love that about your game is not only will you pick a contrarian goalie, but you, you're supposed to take the forwards with that team as well and, and because and hoping that the other team is the, fav, the huge favorite and they have the goalie on the other side. It's just so polarizing. It's, it's just so variant to the fact that um, you're right in terms of whether it's basketball or football. You can't, the opposing player will, you know, let's say they do score or they do steal the ball. It's not, it's not the end of the day. Whereas if you get an empty net full line goal on a contrarian team, you will shoot from the middle of the pack to first place. And that's daily fantasy hockey. And that's kind of what we're trying to do when we're narrowing down our, our, our lineups and how we construct them. And it's more of a game theory. It's more of a, uh, um, a psychology thing in terms of you know how we're constructing than it is on a, on a play thing. And I and I think we're kind of I hope we're not turning anyone off to playing fantasy hockey by saying it's all luck because that's definitely not the case. And and you know I am I'm sitting here you know as truth and and I know you've been having a good year too. And it's you know it's it's really really being consistent with your bankroll management and and knowing you know what tournaments to play and and doing it consistently because if you do it consistently the upsets will happen. And when the upsets happen and you have the right players, you're going to make a lot of money. Yeah, I I should definitely clarify. It's not all luck, but it's a lot of luck, and it's more luck than any other sport. So our goal is just to position ourselves to benefit from the luck. I mean, luck doesn't have to be a bad yes. thing. Uh, if, if other people think that there's a lot of stability in the sport and you know that there's not, you can take advantage of that, and I think that's what we're trying to do. So it's, exactly. it's not a bad thing. I, I don't think that should dissuade anyone from – playing daily fantasy hockey. I mean, maybe you're worried that the players all have foreign names and that's why that's why you don't like the sport, and that's probably a more legitimate reason than saying there's too much luck involved. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And um, I almost, I almost it, to, to a certain degree, feel more comfortable in playing a consistent game in terms of setting contrarian lineups than I do um, watching a baseball game and picking a hitter that's hot and saying, oh, I'm going to go with him tonight because I think he's going to hit another home run. And, and, and it, it's just staying true to a format and staying true to a system and, and staying true to baseball management that it, it does it does play out if you do it the right way. And um, yeah. So I don't I don't really have anything else. Uh, I think we've yeah. covered everything we wanted <laughs> think, to cover. I think we covered a lot. Hopefully we didn't. I'm sitting here wondering why I'm playing fantasy hockey because it's all fucking. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I I'm reinvigorated. I'm excited for the season to come back tomorrow. I think. Uh, I don't know. These these are more of the methods that I've gotten used to because I play a lot of other sports mm-hmm. like them. And this is my first real year playing DFS hockey. And mm-hmm. I just I like it so much because it I've tried to do these contrarian and leverage and other strategies in other sports. And baseball, I guess, has been sort of it sort of works there. But hockey is is the most extreme of any of them. It sort of fits my way of thinking more than any other sport I've played. So it's it's um it's a cool realization that there was this other sport out there. I mean, I've been a hockey fan forever, but never really played it for fantasy. And it's like this, there was this sport here the whole time that just fits exactly how I want to construct lineups. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. And you know what? Something that I haven't been doing at all this year and, and you've been doing a lot and I kind of pointed it out is, is, is just, is, is going against the chalk with the other opposing offense. And when I when I came in second with Kyle Palmieri, everyone was on the Columbus Blue Jackets goalie. And for some reason, when I was setting my lineup in my head, I was like, you know what? Not only am I 
getting someone that's low on, but I'm getting someone that's going against the chalk. And it just clicked for me. And I haven't been doing that as much. So it's like, it's, it's just, it's just such a huge difference, you know, in terms of other sports, like you said. Yeah. Well, there we go. I mean, we have our, I think what you should be more excited about is having these, these new methods. I mean, I'm happy to have talked them out because I've definitely struggled on these larger slates. I know you've struggled more on the smaller ones and, I think we've we've kind of hashed out the problems with both and the the fallacies that we can succumb to when we're dealing with things that are a little more out of our element. Like for me, it's actually knowing the players and the actual value of the players, like with value lines you were talking about. And then I guess on your side, it's more of that game theory stuff. And I I would assume that most people struggle with both of them. So hopefully, this has been helpful helpful for everyone. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and, and while it is a lot of, and don't get me wrong, like, while it is a lot of game theory, while it is a lot of luck, while there are some empty net goals, you really got to watch the sport and you really got to know, you know, the players and, 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 you know, and, and which teams have the highest, you know, power play percentage at home. And it's more than just stats. And, you know, it, it, it's a combination. It really is a combination of playing the game theory that we're talking about, but also knowing the sport too. So it's not, you know, it, it really isn't all luck. All right. Well, this has been fun, John. Um, I guess I won't. I won't really give the schedule of the next podcast coming up because who knows when anyone's listening to this. Uh, we're not talking about tomorrow's game, so hopefully uh, people will listen to this soon or whenever or I don't know. But uh, thanks for tuning in, everyone, and yeah. we'll be back soon.